guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up Revelation chapter 16, and we will continue our journey through the final uh, outpouring of the wrath of God. Uh, We see the culmination tonight in the 6th and the (coughs) 7th bowl that's going to be poured out. So we'll pick up our reading in verse 12 of chapter 16. It says, In the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great uh, river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, great earthquakes, such as had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, God, and we pray that you would uh, just meet us in this place. God, give us uh, <clears throat> clarity in our minds, God. Just uh, just help us be able to focus, Lord, on what your word declares. God, I pray that we would hold fast to the biblical text and uh, our desire ultimately to uh, understand the things, Lord, that you're laying out for us here in uh, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask your blessing on this time. And we give you thanks for it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so the next bowl that we see, the sixth bowl, is poured out and it becomes the picture of the battle of Armageddon. Right? We're going to be taking a look at Armageddon. Now, the Bible talks about, uh, especially Revelation, talks about another battle. And I just want to give you the the differences between the two. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 7... It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet uh, were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 20, after the thousand years are ended, we're going to be introduced 
to what is commonly referred to as uh, the millennial reign of Christ. Scripture talks about the promise that we see way back with Abraham, right? Abraham was given a promise for the land that Abraham, you, you follow me, you walk with me, this land that I give to you is going to be uh, um, an eternal covenant between me and you. And then, a little while later, we hear similar a language used of David as king. Remember, David wants to build God a house. You remember what God says? David, I'm going to build you a house. And there will never cease to be on the throne. So there's a concept of a kingdom, right? Spoken of in the Old Testament. There will never cease to be on the throne someone from your line. I'm paraphrasing, but the idea, someone from the line of David. Now, ultimately, these things are fulfilled in Christ. That Christ is going to, or fulfills that role, as a king who will never pass away, right? He's, he's never going to die. He's never going away. He's eternal. He's the king. And we're looking for, in the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament, this idea of an earthly kingdom for the children of Israel, in Israel, centered in Israel, in the land that God promised them, with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning from the throne of David. So because of that, when we come to Revelation chapter 20, and it talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ, right? When a king reigns, what do we call that? A kingdom, right? So he king's reigning, Jesus is reigning a thousand years. And uh, Isaiah chapter 11, if you get a chance to take a look at it, tells us what the world's going to be like then. The scripture tells us that the Lord's going to lift the curse, it, it gives us the idea, right, of... You guys have all heard this phrase, the lion lays down with the lamb. You know that's not in the Bible. Sorry, I don't mean to mess up with your mind. <clears throat> it says the lion will eat straw like the ox. That's in the Bible. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That's in the Bible, because those are natural enemies. The Bible talks about the wolf <clears throat> and the lamb. But the idea is... The, the thing that drives this world in the curse, sin, that's done with, it's, it's dealt with. And the scripture says that a child, a baby, will be able to play by a cobra's den and not be afraid. Because the, the fear of wild beasts that we have on the earth today will be done with. But what the Bible is going to tell us when we get to chapter 20, we'll talk about it a little bit more. There's a thousand year reign of, of Christ as king on earth. And at the end of the thousand years, it said in that scripture I just read to you, Satan's going to be loosed. The Bible says he's going to be bound and cast into the abuso, the pit. And then he's going to be loosed for a season to have opportunity. People often ask, well, why, why would that happen? Well, man always says he's a product of his environment. And so what happens is you have a perfect environment. And Satan loosed. And the reality is man's problem is not his environment. What's his problem? What the Bible says his problem is his heart. That we need a new heart. So Satan's going to be loosed. The armies will rise up against him, right? They'll come against him. And when they come against him, the, the battle is very short. We just read it, right? Fire will come out of the heavens, consume the armies. And basically you move to the great white throne judgment. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. There's no escape from that. 
and we move into final judgment. That battle is different from the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon takes place at the end of the tribulation period, and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, it says, And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The Bible indicates that there's going to be a time when all the world comes against Jerusalem. Now, do we have a hard time seeing that in, in the news, the idea, the concept of that? I'm not saying this is a precursor to it, but the idea of... Uh, I, I don't know of anyone, rightly or wrongly, who has more UN sanctions against them than Israel. Right? So some, every once in a while they get sanctioned for the, what somebody else does to them. It does happen. So the, uh, the idea is out there. God says they're all going to move against Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about it as well. Verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. <clears throat> and I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and women raped. Half of the city shall go <clears throat> into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. And when he fights on the day of battle, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It's talking about the Lord doing the battle, right? God's feet being, Jesus' feet being on the earth, which is what we're going to read about as we, as we delve a little deeper into the idea of the battle of Armageddon. We're not fighting. Israel's not fighting in it. What does Scripture say? In Revelation chapter 19, as Jesus returns, a sword comes out of his mouth, right, with which he is going to devour the nations. He's going to fight the battle. We read a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, that he, Jesus, is trampling the grapes of wrath alone. He's the one who is doing the battle. That's what Zechariah 14, 1 through 4 tell us. <clears throat> Zechariah 14, 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will, will, will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. A plague that the Lord uses to strike the people that do what? Wage war against Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 14. We saw... The harvesting of the earth, you remember. And it said, An angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress wine of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, 1,600 stadia, roughly 180 miles. So big battle, a lot of destruction, a lot of blood. Revelation 19.15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So the battle of Armageddon is a battle that Christ fights at his return when he sets up his kingdom. What the scripture talks about is a thousand year reign. Well, let's look at the preparation of the battle in verse 12. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Why? What's it say? To prepare the way for the kings from the east. Literally, the kings of the rising sun. 
That's why we put east. Where's the sunrise? In the east. So the kings of the east <coughs> coming. So the river Euphrates is going to dry up. Now, when we look at scriptures, Genesis 15, 18, Deuteronomy 1, 7 through 8, when it gives the borders, the, the, the original borders that God talks about when he talks about the nation of Israel, you know it's much larger than it is today. It goes from the river of Egypt, whether or not that's a Nile is up for discussion, to the great river Euphrates. Uh, most of what is Syria and Iraq today would be included in the promised land. So when we get an idea, it, the river Euphrates was to be one of the borders that God originally promised when he promised it to Abraham. When we look at Isaiah eleven fifteen, it says, The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with a scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and lead people across it wearing sandals. <clears throat> so the idea that the river Euphrates is going to dry up so that an army can cross, so that people can enter in. In Revelation chapter 9, you'll remember verse 14, we saw four angels that were released that were held at the river Euphrates. Do you remember? It said, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year. They're released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of the troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, 200 million man army crossing or being able to enter in. Now, this army is not just made up of of the physical. We talked about that before, and we're going to see that again as we look at this scripture, that there is a demonic force at work behind the scenes, right? So the, the battlefield is prepared. God dries up the river Euphrates. Kings of the east can come. The armies of the Antichrist are gathered together. Ultimately, those are going to fight each other. Because if you've learned anything about man, man's never satisfied with the power he has. Is he? I've never seen man satisfied with the power he has. Not us. Not Russia. Not North Korea. Everybody wants something else, don't they? They always, I don't know, too many people are just saying, oh, this is good enough. I just want to be left alone. Maybe Switzerland. I don't know. I have, to, I have to go ask the people. But when we look at it, there's this drive in man to constantly want more and more and more. And we get a little insight to it in verse 13. Look at it. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, that's interesting, right? A couple of interesting things. What are we saying? Well, there's a demonic or a spiritual force involved in it all. Now, the dragon is a picture of Satan. So, so that seems kind of, kind of obvious. Uh, the beast is a political system. And the false prophet is a religious system. But the point is they're all driven by or orchestrated by or have in their midst unclean spirits. And I think it's interesting that they're described like frogs. Why? Because frogs live in two realms. Land and water. And what do we see these particular spirits doing? Living in two realms. What, the realm of men and the realm of spirit. The, the, the realm of 
if you will, the spiritual realm or angelic realm and the realm of mankind. I think that's the point. It's a <clears throat> metaphor, right? They're like frogs. They're not frogs. But there's something about frogs that describes these spirits that are coming forth out of these symbols that represent this overall rebellion against God, right? This overall rebellion against God that has always been on the earth and most often is described as Babylon, right? Babylon, the city in rebellion against God. Jerusalem, described as a city of God, God's city. <clears throat> Not necessarily speaking one way or the other that one is always right or the other is always right. It's just a picture, right? Here's a picture. God's place and man's rebellion. Man's rebellion against God. God's redemption of man is what we're looking to. So what does it say their abilities are? It says they are demonic spirits doing what? Performing signs. Performing signs. There's real spiritual power. Now a lot of people will tell you it is deceptive power. Maybe it is. Maybe it's all tricks. I don't know. <clears throat> but what the Bible doesn't what the Bible doesn't tell me, it doesn't use a word that means tricks. It uses a word to mean there are performing, you know, some some kind of miracle. When we see <clears throat> Moses in Egypt, what was it that the that the sorcerers of Pharaoh, what did they do? Didn't they do similar things? Didn't they turn water to blood? Okay, maybe it was all tricks. But what I recognize in that is the power of the devil can only make a situation worse, not better. He can't overturn what God's doing. He can just continue what's happening. Water, more water that they did have was turned to blood. That didn't make it better, made it worse. The thing, whatever they did, <clears throat> made the situation worse. And so these guys, the false prophet, the beast, these systems, these plans, these world governments coming against the people of God. They've been wiping out the people of God throughout this tribulation period of time. They're going to be able to perform signs. They're going to be able to do things. I don't know what those things are. But I imagine if an angel appeared in our midst, he'd be able to do stuff you and I can't do. And so if an, if an elect or a good angel appears, he's going to do good things for the Lord. What a, what's a bad one going to do? Bad things, right? Can we agree on that? So he's going to do uh, or perform signs. They're going to be performing signs. Now, what's the purpose of these? What do they do? Because all of these beings, guys, as we work our way through, are functioning within their nature. They're doing what they want to do. And what are they accomplishing? God's will. They're still accomplishing God's will. What is it that they're doing? They're going to draw the armies of the world to battle. What battle? The battle God wants. The last battle. The, the final battle for earth, anyways, before we come into the, to the kingdom age. So they're going to gather them to battle on the great day of God the Almighty. The Pantocrator. God the Almighty. So <clears throat> they're coming, they're gathering, the, the demonic forces are pulling them together. But not only do we have that here, but we also then have the promise of the second coming. What's the very next phrase? It's parenthetical, right? That parenthetical phrase, look at it. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Now, who's talking? Let's back up. This is the revelation of who? Jesus, right? 
The revelation of Jesus Christ. So, who's the one speaking? Well, in case you're wondering, we can back up and take a look at some other places. Revelation 22.7 says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22.12 Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 22.13 I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The cause and the fulfillment. Verse 16, in case we had any doubt of who's speaking yet. And if you have a red letter edition, it makes it even easier because they're all in red. I... Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So you have the promise of the the coming of God. What's he say? I'm coming. How? As a thief in the night. I'm coming as a thief in the night. So we have the promise of the second coming. But then we also have the surprise, right? Because he says he's coming like a a metaphor again, like a what? Like a thief, right? A thief comes when you don't expect him to come, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't come. If you're all waiting for him at the door, the shotgun, thief's not coming in, right? He, He needs to know that you're not ready. And so there are these challenges throughout Scripture where Jesus says to His people, Be awake, be awake, be awake. This day should not overtake you as a thief. Be awake, be watching, be looking, be praying. Constantly we have these things. Matthew 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The idea is, don't sleep. Don't don't uh, drift away. Don't float down the river somewhere and, and lose your anchor, which should be set in Christ, because you want to be ready when the Lord returns. First Thessalonians 5.2, he says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In First Thessalonians 5.4, But you are not in darkness, brother, so that that day would surprise you like a thief. The idea is he comes like a thief in the night for everybody else. They don't expect him. But for the believer... He's supposed to be looking for... That's one of the things that marks him, right? He's looking for the return of the Lord. Blessed is he who loves his appearing, looking for and hastening the appearing of the Lord. We want to we have that attitude. In Second Peter 3.10, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away with a roar, heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done on it, will be exposed. So when the Bible talks about Jesus coming as a thief, it's not talking about His coming for us. It's talking about His return to the earth. When they say peace and safety and sudden destruction will come upon them as a a child to a woman in childbearing. The idea is that Jesus Christ will come and the world won't expect Him. The world's not going to expect Him, but He is coming. The second coming, this is what we're talking about here. The second coming when his feet touch the ground, like we read, right? His feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to start walking down that 180 uh, mile uh, Jezreel Valley, 
starting near Megiddo, Basra actually. Who is this who comes from Basra? Walking up through Megiddo on the Via Maris, all the way up, battling the armies of the world to Jerusalem, where his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, as we read, and he will set up his kingdom. So the seriousness of this is what says in the next phrase. Why should, we, why should this be taken seriously? We should live in anticipation, right? What's it say? Blessed is the one who does what? Stays awake. The people who go to sleep, not, that's not supposed to be the believer. The believer is the one who stays awake, looking for the return of the Lord. Eyes focused. The idea is anticipating him. The best example of this I ever heard was from Fritz. Fritz Redmer said, you, know, you know, remember when we were kids and there was some guest coming over to the house and you're all excited about him coming and you would sit on the couch and look out the window just longing, staring, waiting for that car to pull up in the driveway and get to run around in circles and go crazy and say, they're here, here. <clears throat> That's what the Bible's talking about when it says for a believer to stay awake looking for the return of Christ. We're anticipating him. We want to be with him. It's a whole concept we've been, we've been trying to lay down, that idea that Jesus Christ is my treasure. He's the thing that I want more than other things. I want Him. And if I want Him, my life is lived in anticipation of Him. Always looking for Him. And then there are actions. Not only is there the anticipation, but there's action. What's the next part of the phrase? Keeping His garments on. Being dressed. He's ready. He's ready to go. When they had Passover, how were they to eat Passover, that first Passover? You remember? Shoes on their feet, dressed, ready to go, right? Be ready to go, because after you eat that meal, we're leaving. And so the, the idea is, not only is there this anticipation, but there's keeping on the garments. The idea is not we're not running around naked or exposed. We're not finding ourselves... In impure situations, we're finding ourselves living the lives that should be expected, right? That, that that's the goal. Blessed is the man. Oh, how happy is a guy that stays awake and, and keeps going. Why? Because when he sees the Lord, he's going to be satisfied at that meeting. What about the guy who was asleep? Or the guy who didn't have his clothes on or wasn't ready? We all we talk about that, right? Are you ready for the return of the Lord? It doesn't really matter when you think He's coming. The Bible is relatively clear. Live your life ready for You could meet Him any time, couldn't you? You could meet Him in 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 days, 20 years. But the Bible says you live your life ready to meet the Lord. And that's what He's talking about. Oh, how happy. Oh, how blessed is the man who lives his life ready to meet the Lord, ready for Him. In 1 John 2.28, here's what John says, the same author who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. It's the idea. We bear the characteristics of the one we say we follow. You ever had your parents say you become like your friends? So pay attention to who you're hanging out with. Because you, you know, you start to become like the people you hang out with. Well, what if the person you hang out with is Jesus Christ? Shouldn't that also transfer? 
shouldn't the characteristics of Christ become our characteristics? And, and so that's, our, that's what we want, right? That that's flowing out of us. In 1 John 3, verse 1 through 3, this is what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. What a great thing. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep know my voice. When He calls, what do they do? They come to Him, right? They come to Him. So they don't know us because they didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't even really quite understand what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face. Do we? Now, if you hear somebody say, I know exactly what it's going to be like, you should probably run the other way. I don't know if... That always scares me when somebody has all the answers, especially when they're answers that nobody should have. He says here, we don't know what we're going to be. We don't know what it's like or what we will be. uh, And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Right? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then here's this little phrase. Everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone looking for, hastening the, the appearance of the Lord wants to be ready when Jesus sees them. Their life is lived in a purity, in a holiness because they're constantly thinking about how do I want the Lord to find me? What do I want him to find me doing? Do I want him to find me, you know, on my bad day? Sometimes I like to tell myself I have a right to have a bad day, you know, go do whatever I do. And, and oftentimes in, that, in my little pity party, I hear myself say, is this really how you want to meet the Lord? Because I don't know what's going to happen, right? And I think, no, you know, this is not how I want to meet the Lord. It changes the way... I think about how or excusing how I behave. And so it's helpful to the, to the believer to live a life of righteousness, of purity, to say, this is not how I want to be found. I want to be found, you know, having the kind of thoughts I need to have. Now, I'm not perfect, but I know one who is. And if I ask him, won't he help me? If I go to him, won't he forgive me? If I, if I call on his name, what's he say? Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That that God will move. He will save us by His mighty right arm. So we see the anticipation, the actions that we need to have as we consider His coming. It's parenthetical, right? Parenthetical means He's talking about the Armageddon. And He says, hey, by the way, all you guys who are reading this, man, the Lord is coming. Be ready for Him. Yeah? You with me? Now we're going to go back and talk about the place where the nations are gathered. Look at verse 16. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that is called, what's the word? Armageddon. I bet most people around the world, there's two things, well, there's probably several things they might know about the Bible. They all know the number of the beast, which is 666, right? Well, depends, mostly. And then you, everybody knows Armageddon. Where's the last battle of the world going to take place? Armageddon. Lots of battles throughout history have taken place in Armageddon. Har, Mount Megiddo. The city of Megiddo is a little city. It's a, 
It's a stable city, a horse city built by Solomon, right? The Solomon of the Bible to watch over beneath it the Via Maris, the, the way of the merchants, right? The way of the sea that the merchants would travel and so they would have safe travel coming in and going out. So this, this fort, Megiddo, was built on this little hill, which is really a tell, but built on a little hill and it overlooks this incredibly large valley of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley. So they're going to be assembled there. 180 miles long, they'll be spread out, set up. The ultimate goal of destroying the nation of Israel, right? Coming up against the nation of Israel. Now, whose throne is at the nation of Israel at this time? Who sat, on the, who sat in the temple and declared himself to be God? You remember? There's, there's a scene where the scripture says the Antichrist is going to, in the middle of the tribulation period, sit on the throne and say, I'm God. And what does Jesus say for everyone to do? Get out of town. Leave. Go. Leave. Go. Kings of the East are now coming. They're coming to do battle with uh, the armies of the Antichrist. I think the goal is that there's going to be this big battle between the two of them. But here's what we know happens when Jesus came, you had two traditional enemies. When Jesus was born and he walked on this earth for three years, when he was crucified, you had two traditional enemies become friends. A Roman named Pilate and a king named Herod. What made them friends? They both couldn't stand Jesus. So what do you have? The armies of the Antichrist, the armies of the kings of the east, all this destruction going on, coming against Jerusalem, God's city, God's place, God's area, Jesus returns. What are they all going to do? They're going to forget they're fighting each other, right? And they're going to try to fight the one you can't fight. Because the Bible is clear. What does it say? How many knees will bow? Every knee will bow, right? When Jesus Christ... Return. So, the other thing I want you to see, the word Armageddon can mean the Mount Megiddo, or if we get a little deeper into the meaning of the words, it can also mean Mount of Slaughter. Both are apropos, both are, we're still dealing with the same geographical area as we look at it, but Mount of Slaughter could be a very accurate thing indeed. So that's what we're laid out. That is the sixth bowl, the wrath of God, the battle of of Armageddon. We'll get to look at it a little deeper when we get to chapter 19. Now we look at verse 17. We're going to look at the seventh bowl. The seventh bowl, the final bowl poured out. It says, uh, the seventh angel, verse 17, poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So let me ask you, who speaks out of the temple? Whose throne is, the t- is in the temple? What was the Ark of the Covenant, right? You remember? The mercy seat. Why they call it the mercy seat? Because God's merciful and it covers over all the failures of mankind. What's the voice say? Relatively close to, it's not the same word as we read in the Gospels, but the same idea, right? What is it? It is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. It's It's over. And what is that marked by? This incredible earthquake, right? And we talked about that before. Now, this earthquake, I, I believe, is real because the Bible doesn't say 
Well, it doesn't use descriptive language when it says the islands disappear <laughs> and the mountains are gone. Man, that sounds like pretty hardcore geographical changes. But keep in mind when we look at this, what is happening when Christ returns to set up his kingdom, what else is being changed? It's not just a matter of, of changing the government of mankind. It's a matter of undoing the curse, recreating, reestablishing the creation, redeeming the creation. Remember in Romans it said all creation groans for the day when the sons of God will be declared, when they'll be seen. Well, when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19, who's with him? The Bible says he's, he's followed by a host that cannot be numbered. On white horses returning with him, setting up this incredible kingdom. And so the idea all throughout scripture, when you have harsh cosmic upheaval, Remember, the sun will be darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars fall out of the sky. Always cosmic upheaval. Not only it, it always speaks of an of a irreversible political change. And the irreversible political change that's taking place is Jesus Christ is king. And so the earth is going to get a facelift. Still the same earth. It's not, we haven't got to chapter 22 where there's a new heaven and a new earth. You guys tracking with me? But there's going to be a new, something different about the way the world is. The effects of the fall are going to be erased. And the way God erases them, it's going to be this giant earthquake. Look at it. It says there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peal of thunder, a great earthquake such as never been since man was on the earth. So great an earthquake. So it's big. Right? We're, everybody's tracking. Big earthquake. The great city. What's that? What city is that? That's Jerusalem. The great city is going to be divided into three parts. means it's going to fall down. Now the scripture tells us that throughout the battles, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be wiped out and one-third is going to live. It's interesting that in this earthquake, the city is divided into thirds. So in thirds, the city is going to divide into thirds. How that's going to look afterwards... We'll have to wait and see, but the city will be split. What about the cities of the nations? The nations, the goyim, the goyim, the Gentiles, everybody else. What's it say about their cities? What do they do? They fall down. Big earthquake, right? Big earthquake. Look, the way we've been doing things before Christ was king, that's all going to go away. And the way we do things after Christ is king is going to be radically different. So we're just going to... Get all the building materials ready. <laughs> all in a pile. Right? They're going to bring all the building blocks down into a pile. The cities and the nations will fall. God remembered Babylon the Great. Remember I told you, Babylon the Great is a symbol for the rebellion of mankind against God. That's pretty much all mankind's heart. God's going to be judging that attitude. And he's going to make her, that act of rebellion, that city of rebellion... Drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. When God, when judgment comes, judgment comes and it all comes. Jeremiah was told the nation of Babylon was coming against uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's already gone. God told Jeremiah, stop praying that it won't come. There's nothing you can do. The judgment is coming. Period. There's a point where 
Man reached, God will judge sin, period. It will all be judged. God's judgment will come. There's nothing we can do to, to make that judgment or forestall that judgment. Now, we can stand before God righteous because we are standing in Christ and He covers us. But nonetheless, God's judgment still fell, didn't it? God's judgment still fell. There's still that, that act of God judging the nations. And so this is going to happen. It says in verse 20, every island fled away. So, so I don't know what that means. If the islands sink, if the islands change, I don't know. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Every island will fled, fled away. No mountains were to be found. So mountains flattened, the islands gone. Great hailstones, 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. So great hailstones. Total cosmic upheaval. Incredible earthquake. And mankind is going to curse the God they know exists. Because the problem on earth is not a lack of information about who God is. According to Romans chapter 1, the problem is everyone knows God because God has shown himself to them. But we or they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So they stand guilty before God. How do I know that to be true? Because we've read at least three times, maybe four, how when the judgments fell, the people cursed who? God. Why you curse somebody that doesn't exist? All the people on earth are called the earth dwellers. They're not believers. Why would they curse someone they know? Because it's not an issue about them not knowing he exists. It's an issue of the unwillingness to submit to the authority of God. I will not bow to the Lord. I will not have God rule over me. And ultimately, isn't that what occurs at the end of the story? What is the lake of fire? It's a place where God does not rule over you. Mankind receiving that which he desires. But when we see men cursing God because the plagues are so harsh, cursing God. How many times have you seen a professing atheist cursing God for all these evil that he can't account for without God? How do you call something evil if there is no God? Then what's evil and what's good? How can you say something is good or evil apart from him? And why are you so angry at something that doesn't exist? Because every man is created in the image of God, right? And inside every man is the knowledge of God. And the gospel, when shared, wakes it up. That's why he says, the foolishness of the message preached. That's what God uses. We share the gospel. We share the gospel so that that, that knowledge of God can be awoken, awakened. How do you say it? Awaken? Awaken the right way? I don't know. Jerry will tell me. Where are you at, Jerry? What? Awaken? He's, he's my English tutor. So if you guys ever hear me using bad grammar, Jerry's the one supposed to fix me. I'm just letting you know. He's supposed to be working on all that for me. So, but anyways, if we look at it, I just want you to see that rebellion. When the Bible talks about Babylon, it's talking about rebellion. When we look at the judgments of God 
the horrific things, I wish none of it had happened. But what is it happening on? It's happening on those who rebel. It's happening on those who, who are rebelling against God. That's why when we roll back time, go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, what did God tell you to teach your children? Teach them about the Lord everywhere you go. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you work, teach them about the Lord so that they can learn. They can learn at a, a young age to submit to God, not rebel against God. Learning to submit is an important aspect of the life of a believer. Because ultimately, don't we see that in the life of Christ? Do we not see him show us what submission looks like? Jesus said, I've come to do the will of my Father. The words he gives me to speak, those are the words I speak. The deeds he wants me to do, those are the things I do. That's what Jesus said. He's laying it all out for us. He's showing us. He's showing us. Showing us that, that way. We want to have that attitude that says, yeah, I want to. I want to serve my creator, the one who made me, the one who knows what I need, how I work what I think about and still loves me anyway. Right? He knows and he loves me anyway. I love all that. I love that idea of, of God. So they cursed the God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. It says in Isaiah twenty four eighteen, He who flees at the sound of the terror falls into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven have opened, and the foundations of the earth trembled. It's God's judgment. We can't escape God's judgment. We can forestall, we can submit, we can bow, a lot of things we can do. But the day of judgment comes. And when the day of judgment comes, what is it that God is asking of us? You know, Proverbs 24 if you read Proverbs 24, 10 through 12, it definitely lays out some ideals. What should we be doing? What, what should be our attitude when we, when we consider uh, um, the coming judgment of God? Well, Ezekiel said it in chapter 3. He said, sound the trumpet. Sound the trumpet in Zion. Warn those who are rushing to destruction. Call people to repentance. Share the gospel. Right? Nobody has to find themselves in this outpouring of the wrath of God. God has provided a way through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We trust in Christ. We enter into Him. You can really see Him as a a vehicle that will protect us, right, against the wrath of God. What is it that the Bible says? If you're in Christ, you are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not appointed to wrath means the wrath of God doesn't fall on you. It doesn't mean hard things don't happen. It just means that's not God's wrath. What we're reading, that's God's wrath. That's bad, right? But that's not what our life looks like. Our life is dramatically different. And so the call from Jesus when he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So go therefore. Go therefore. Take 
the seed of the word and cast it and see what will bear fruit. A sower went out to sow. That's the call God gives us. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and know this. I'll be with you all the way to the end. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.